You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to another episode of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host, Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. And on this week's show, uh, we have someone who actually left the country uh, well over a decade ago in pursuit of of the sport that he loves, uh, trying to carve out a, a coaching career for himself. It's none other than Chris Mays. Um, you know, he, he's got an incredible story. Uh, actually, he was diagnosed with a tumour, had some pretty serious surgery, but that sort of uh, brush with with, with death um, kind of made him realise that basketball uh, and basketball coaching was really what he wanted to pursue. So in 2010, uh, he headed to Spain, joined Canarias Basketball Academy, unpaid. Eventually, he did work to having a, a salary there, but worked there for five years with some of the top prospects in Europe. Uh, working on their development, helping helping them send them to send them uh, on scholarship to the states um, before leaving in 2015, and then has done stints in various different countries: uh, Belgium, Netherlands, uh, Spain, and is now back in Netherlands. Cur- currently, the technical director of BC Triple Threat, a sort of development program which is aspiring towards having a a, a pro program. But yeah, super interesting and inspiring story uh, of someone that you know felt that in the UK he wasn't going to get the development uh, or the the progression that he he needed. Um, so felt the need to to leave the country and has stuck with it despite you know. And he says in this podcast, admitting that it's very unstable, it's volatile. Um, you know, like professional players have got to deal with, there isn't the job stability that you might get in other roles, and you can be let go at any time. Um, but he stuck with it and has made it work. So uh, it was yeah, super interesting to kind of get into his story, uh, which I think uh, you'll thoroughly enjoy like I did. Um, as always, uh, please take two seconds to go and check out our Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash hootfix, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash H-O-O-P-S-F-I-X. There you can sign up to give us a monthly or annual contribution of as much or as little as you would like uh, that will go a long way in helping us do the work that we do. So please go and check it out. If you get any value from our podcast, uh, from the post that we put on the website, the content that we put out on social media, the videos that we put on YouTube, uh, please consider donating uh, patreon.com forward slash hoopsfix. As always, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, let me know what you think about what Chris had to say uh, in the comments below. You can reach out to me on every single social media platform at HoopsFix. And as always, if you prefer some one-on-one private interaction, uh, drop me an email, sam at hoopsfix.com. Anyway, that is enough from me. Uh, Here is this week's show with Chris Mays. Chris, welcome to the show. Hi, Sam. How are you? Nice to be here. Yeah, good to have you. Uh, obviously, you're, you're joining us from, from overseas at the moment. Um, you know, how, how is it actually just let's just start there before we go back into the into sort of your story. But but how is the present day? What situation with COVID uh, in the Netherlands at the moment? Uh, and kind of what situation with the program that you're involved with? Well, at the moment, it's been it's actually COVID has been a lifeline for us because we've been actually trying to redevelop the program here. Uh, we have a program in between a foundation. We're trying to build a professional men's club here as well as the junior elite teams. And uh, we, we started this year as well with a professional ladies team uh, where we uh, pair ex-Euro league players, a couple of ex-Euro league players, uh, a couple of Americans and put them with younger girls, uh, talented young girls to see if we can progress and start building the identity through the foundation that we have. Um, and this year, actually, COVID has kind of really, like I said, it's really helped because it's given us that breathing space to focus on different things at different times because at certain points all year, so the boys didn't go, then the boys went, then the girls wouldn't go, then the girls went, and then we got different elite status for different things. Now, since Christmas, the uh, the ladies' league has gone full-time. 
So now with testing, we're allowed to just focus on this particularly. But it's really actually COVID from taking on the new position in August. It's it's really actually helped us move forward with the club. It's extremely frustrating that we can't have the boys in right now. But, um, you know, we're, we're under curfew and everything like that here. So for us, it's it's just time. But there's it's also now we've got a lot of time. We know where we want to go with this, so structure can move forward. And your official role with the club is sort of a te- technical director. Like, what, yeah. what's kind of like your roles and responsibilities? What, what are you overseeing? Um, my overseeing is trying to bring a different. Here is uh, it was kind of like old school in the UK, where hey, we used to. Here is a very individual that is typically in a Dutch, which is export import of players. You know, our club before. Uh, we could say that it was kind of like the Ikea of sports, you know, what they would have is they would have extremely talented, you know, good, good looking size players, you know, they box them up, send them to other clubs at 16 and then they take them apart, put them in the house and put them back together and make them play. So now what we're trying to do, we got a resignation, our, our foundation below, which is run by, run by the, the, the management here and it's supported by one of the best singers in the, in the country as well, financially. So, because they're husband and wife, uh, we, we now are able to put, to put a line under foundation basketball and maybe elite driven basketball, uh, bring a club culture here. Uh, so we stopped giving away kids at such a young age, 16, 17, to go on and play Champions League thing, but also just to develop Dutch basketball a little bit further, keep them to a little bit longer. So instead of sending them away with potential, you're sending them away now with some sort of skill, some sort of identity. So that furniture, if you're talking about the IKEA thing, is actually what they want, where they can put it in the corner of the room and they go with purpose instead of actually just you know, sending them for no reason at all. So, and that way we believe that we can help grow uh, our club, the level of club basketball here in Holland, because we still hear, you know, there's always three teams every year that play European competition. So just instead of the DBL, you've always got a higher level to always strive for. You've obviously got the best teams here, but we just want to put ourselves in a position where we can compete for the first season and not just go in like some teams that are here where just they just hang a hole with no program, no roster, and just put it together with money, and it, obviously that never, ever works. What is the, the general structure of, of your club like in terms of uh, sort of number of teams, levels that you're competing at, different age groups, uh, male, females, all that kind of stuff? Like, yeah, like what's the sort of the rough overview of the structure? So the rough overview we got, it's uh, we have... All the way down from U12, uh, we are based in Harlem, which is a, a, a more ethnic side of Amsterdam, a more cultural side of Amsterdam. So there's a lot of talent here. We have a, we have a lot of dealings also with Ajax because Ajax are in this area as well, looking for footballers, etc. Uh, but obviously they grow very big here, so so we we get the we get that opportunity very quickly. Um, but we, we attract them from 12 uh, into a foundation and the foundation itself, which is triple threat itself, uh, attracts the ones we have the lower. We always have second division lowers. And then at 16, we start with early division, which is the top division and play 16, 18 and U22s in the highest division here um, because we want to continue to have a mask where we pull kids from 12 to 16 
And then we actually always have 15 spots available in an academy higher and keep that as a directional focus for elite. Yeah. But they've always got something to grow because the, the, the hardest thing with a foundation is that you bring them in to change their lives. But actually, these kids have talent and we want them to express that. You know, we want them to build. It works in the music side. Like I said, uh, Dominic's wife, Anouk, she does the voice here and stuff like that. They find rappers here and stuff like that. And they obviously come in because they're attracted to it. But we want to give that added attraction as well to youth like they do to say, OK, there's actually professionalism here. And if you're really good and you're really talented, we want you to express that because we find that coaching, same with coaching, same with any great program, you know, elite talent, elite elitism will find itself, it'll find its own way. It's like, you know, I remember going to this German basketball conference once and they said, we're looking for the next Dirk Nowitzki. And I thought in my head, you, you can't develop Dirk Nowitzki. Dirk Nowitzki works, walks in the door and he develops you because he's unique. What you want is the next T-ball place and the players below that you want to you want to bring through because you create environments that actually attain that level of ability. Yeah. So we always get a shock here when I said, I'm not here to develop you. You're here to develop yourself. My job is actually to create habits, etc., within environments where we can push you every day and just try and make you the best type of person. That's very, very different from the word that is spoken here because I suppose like in England as well, the very word spoken is we send you to the NCAA and everything like this. And But no, we actually just going to invest in the kid because we see the potential in him. We just have to make that environment as tough as possible to get raise the highest standard, which automatically makes us work because we have the commitment then to put them into the highest standard, try and put them into the leagues and uh, try to get these teams touring, go play against the highest competition in Europe and take a more professional act on actually being able to grow the game. How would you compare um, the level of junior talent uh, in Holland compared to England? I think it's uh, very, very similar. You know, they're very, I think in the UK, they're way more athletic, um, you know, very a lot faster, the, the different style. But, you know, these kids have probably grown up a little bit more understanding the game, but still they're, they're they're, they're always coach-led here, and it's very, very frustrating. There's no rawness about them and stuff like that, where the environment has to cater for that. And it's you know, we can, you know, you will always see that we'll win the game in the end because we have that little bit of game knowledge more than anything else. That's it. But that's always been the problem. It's always been the problem for years. They always used to say that with national teams in the UK. You know, these kids are really good, they're athletic, but they just don't have the understanding of the game. Well, we now, we want to balance both and uh, keep that intent just to teach them the game because when the game wins, everybody wins. When individuals win, you know, you always lose a part of that. So it's, to me, that's the most important thing going forward is to be able to actually access game development within an environment so we can harbor what the talent that we have and try not to be somebody that we're not you know where sometimes you see that a lot we in the uk i've seen a lot of great kids that uh, kareem queely is probably one where they get sent to real madrid because of their 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 ability and stuff like that at a very young age being sent somewhere where he probably doesn't understand where he is but madrid know exactly how to use him <laughs> as in because of his size stature etc 
now where Kareem has come now into the adult leagues, now you can finally judge him for what type of basketball player and a pro he is because now he's going to be pushed as a pro. Where we want to try and do that, you know, all of a sudden to bring him in. And if they're too high level for us, then they move on straight away. But if they're not and we can nurture them and bring them through, that's really what we want to do. So, so rewinding back uh, with, with your story, um, I actually don't know a lot about your your early 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 years, but it would be I'd be interested just to hear just uh, sort of the the uh, your early exposure to basketball. What made you first get into the game, uh, and I guess how you ended up following the 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 route of of getting into coaching. Um, I went with where the hell? Sorry, Sam. I don't know what's going on here. Can you still see me? I can. I've lost everything. Oh yeah, I can still see. You <laughs> I fine. Think I, sorry, <laughs> uh, sorry, man. Um, well, so my my parents, they divorced when we were younger. We lived in a little town. It, it, we were born in London, but they moved into a little town just outside Chichester in Midhurst in the south coast. Uh, when my mum and dad, they, they separated, uh, we went with my mum, and we ended up living in a, in a seaside beautiful town called Worthing. Uh, this was obviously when Worthing Bears were at the heyday of what they were, and the, the Worthing Leisure Centre was actually the place to be for basketball. The first ever game I watched was uh, Worthing versus Panathinaikos uh, in, in the Leisure Centre, and that Corian Irish jump shot with his hanging behind his head and everything like this. I was hooked from the very first time. And because I was very lucky, I was very lucky, and I grew up in the area of not just good basketball in the UK, which was the 90s, but also you had the balls at the same time in the NBA. So you always grew up with that level of elitism that was fantastic at that year. It was all good. And basketball became my first love very, very quickly. I tried to play, realized I wasn't good enough. We went through the whole situation, just like every other coach that coaches the game now. We just wasn't good enough. And uh, I made a decision after uh, we were working on a friend's roof uh, in Spain, building his house. And I just made the decision that this is kind of what I really wanted to do. You know, I didn't want to let it go. Working a normal job was a little bit scary. You know, there was too much. And I just wanted to do that. So I made the the effort to come into it and just keep on being around the game all the time, watching the game, trying to go into practices, watching Worthing Thunder. And luckily enough, like Gary Smith, he, he kind of said, well, why don't you keep on coming? And... We kept going and we ended up, I, the first coaching job I had was assistant coach with, with Worthing Thunder. Uh, in the first couple of years, we won everything. And I thought to myself, oh my God, this is a little bit too easy. But at that, <laughs> at that same time, because it was still just very new to me. Um, and and uh, at that same time, I also was able to work at the same time with really the best person that's ever been influenced me in basketball, which was Jimmy Guyman. Um, I was lucky enough to be part of Bev, God rest her soul, and everything like that. They took me into, um, I was linking between both clubs. With Jimmy, Jimmy, I learned, I learned how to be really precise, exact. He has a knowledge and a heart and a love for the game that I've never seen out of anybody that I think I think I've ever seen. Um, he he was the type of guy that would be so detailed, so perfectionist about it. Uh, he would make you nervous when you're around him because his knowledge base was just so high. You're thinking, oh my god, I'm going to say something stupid. But these type of things, he the love and the the, 
the grip for the game is, you know, it's no wonder Matthew is doing what he's doing now. You know, it's no wonder that Solent Kestrels are the club they are um, because it all stemmed from just the dedication from that family, which really just catapulted my life into basketball. And because of their dedication and stuff like that, it's, it just became infectious, you know. So, yeah, the, a lot of the early years were between Worthing and Solent. And uh, they sent me... I was lucky enough that Jimmy sent me to Dan Hayes in Oklahoma Christian. We went for a camp. And at that point there, I thought to myself, yes, this is what I really, really want to do. You know, I really want to do this. But sadly, at the same time, I was feeling very sick. And I didn't know why. I wasn't sure what was going on. Um, but at that point, they were telling me at Oklahoma Christian that they would like to, you know, maybe there was an opportunity that we could go for a graduate assistant after uh, but I needed an undergraduate degree, so I had to go back. So I enrolled at the University of Chichester to try and follow this path. And uh, whilst I was there, I got diagnosed with a tumor in my brain. And I had to, uh, you know, everything just stopped, really, for a couple of years um, while I got myself going and stuff like this. And uh, I thought to myself, then after waking up from that, that this is really what I want to do. And I just absolutely pursued it. <laughs> and, you know, I just thought, yeah, well, I, this is because it's more to me, even even before when we were younger, the uh, home life wasn't that great. And when I was in Worthing too, they, the gym teacher at our school in St. Andrews High School, dad always called because it was a bit unstable to go back home. And the sports teacher would let, allow me to stay in school from five till seven till the other people come in and just shoot. So wherever I find refuge, it's always within this game. I think that's another reason why I find it so hard just to let it go. And it's just always been a part of me ever since I was younger. So mixing yourself around with very good people as well as, you know, everything else, it's just been, you know, it's just a dedication to what I want to do. So you ended up getting uh, your degree from University of Chichester, right? And that was in that was in the co- coaching was it coaching management was it or yeah, uh, co- coaching science, sports coaching science, sports coaching science. Yes. Did Did you find that uh, the actual academic side of things helped with building your sort of coaching philosophy, philosophy or a coaching base, or or do you feel like that actually needs to be built with more time actually on the court and contact with players and, and everything else? Yeah, I think what it done, the, the coaching thing, you still can reference into it now. Even with just coaching, coaching qualifications, it's not, it's doing, it's doing the job. There's, there's no other way of this is an apprentice job. You know, this is a very hard job. And but what that structure did is it kind of gave me structure. We have a saying here that you know, plays don't win you games, actions do. Yeah, and so you can have all the best plays in the world, but you ain't got the right players to make that action. Then there's nothing there. So. you're not going to win the game. So we, I think the education part of it was to try and help me go back to the United States to attain a visa. So, but at that same time, I was able to, you know, just, it it kind of helped me a lot because I took the year off from being diagnosed and having the surgery. And then after that, I went into education. So I stayed for three years in in England, fixing the education while still working with Worthing and Solon. And uh, it kind of, you know, it just gave me time to relax and just take in everything and just really be certain of what I wanted to do. So 
I definitely think there's always a value to the education with it because there's still structures of that that I still use now. There's still terminology. There's still people that mentored me in that period that I still in stay in contact with now. So I think, yes, I, you, education is only as good as what you use, use it for. So, you know, so it's to me, yes, it was very, very important. It also gave me that structure in my life where it's making me commit to something. I remember working with Ed Scott for my thesis as well, doing a directional thing with EuroLeague. So again, opening up extra doors. And I think just like any coaching certificate or whatever, university, whatever, I think it's actually the level of people that you work with that's more important than the actual degree that you get. So so, so you went and you, you chose to do the degree originally to pursue the US pathway. Obviously, you, yeah. you didn't end up going to the States. So, so what ended up happening with that? I, because I couldn't get insurance, et cetera, and it was very difficult because of different types of medication that I had to have. Um, I then moved on to, to Worcester to, to just keep going with the educational side because that sort of thing, it didn't, it didn't happen for me. So I thought, okay, well, whilst we're here and I still have to be in the country, you know, let's see if I can continue going, going forward and keep trying to push and go into the BBL with Worcester. At that time, Chuck Evans was the new coach, and I went in, <laughs> went into that team uh, as a master's student. And that was this. That was the same year that Chuck took over from. Um, oh, what's his name? Oh my God, I can't remember his name. Uh, he was coached there for ages. Canadian. I can't think either. No, I'm thinking there's no. I'm gonna pick myself now. Anyway, he just took over, and Chuck was a very nervous guy all the time, and he was, you know, he was. He, he was an extremely good professional, played for Sesco Moscow and stuff like that. But this was his first coaching job too. He just come out the coaching, because the, it was he. We were I was on the coaching masters. That's how my the course was funded. I did the basketball and that was fine. We also started the uh, the ACE program back in the day. <laughs> that was that's how long that was ago. And uh, it came to a, it came to a blow in a video session. Where unfortunately he said some derogatory things about a couple of a couple of the teammates and the color of their skin, and the whole system went boom for one minute. And I think at the end six players got fired. Uh, me and the older sister, the the old coach, we had to stay because we were part of the university. And Paul James came in, and we finished off running out the season. And uh, after all that. The craziness of that season, with everything else, I was looking for a change because I thought, and also the success that we were able to get very early from Worthing, I was thinking, there must be more to this. There must be more. I, I needed more. I, I wanted to enrich myself. I wanted to put myself amongst. I was looking to go to the United States because I always wanted to put myself amongst the best. I wanted to go somewhere where that. So at that point in time, that was a hard time because I was thinking, I don't know where else to go. Yeah. PJ, PJ once said to me that he, if I stayed with him, I would always be part of a, a BBL legend and stuff like that, which, you know, this is fine with me, but that's not what I was looking for at the time. I wanted to, things were too easy. Wins came too easy. I just always thought that there was something else. You know, watching younger, watching the Nick Nurse teams in Brighton, watching different things. I just thought that this wasn't the level. I wanted to increase the level. I went through all of this to just stop or just be satisfied with this. It wasn't for me. So so at the end of the season, I decided to drop the Masters. And uh, I was kind of left in limbo for a bit. So did you not complete the Masters? 
No, I didn't. I stopped a year in uh, because the team, we just finished off with the team. We And I just stopped a year in and just decided not to go back. At the same time, Alan Keane started that Masters with me as well. So he, he was around, but it, it was just... Yeah, I just didn't really feel like I, it kind of left a, I come in here to do something. I wanted to be professional. I wanted to work towards the level and I never really found that right there. So, and, you know, going back to division one with, with Gary and stuff, it was just, no, I was always looking because I was always inspired to be that perfectionist like Jimmy always. I always used to watch him and think I wanted to do that. So, so to me, yeah, it was a, it was a tainted time at the end of that season. And I wasn't really sure what to do. What was it specifically that you weren't getting that you were looking to get? Like, are you, are you talking about uh, the level of the level of play in terms of the level of coaching that you were exposed to to be able to develop your own coaching, or the sort of the learnings or teachings that you were able to pick up, or are you talking about the level of professionalism? Like, what what you know when you're talking about sort of the I guess the, the issues where you felt like you weren't reaching your potential, or you weren't able to reach your potential. Um, mm. like what specifically are you, are, uh, are you pointing to I think I wanted to push more I think and it, it, most of them points are perfectly true you know it was always based on the university structure so you knew it was never going to go to a professional level I mean things have changed there now they have an arena but I'm sure that still somewhere they're held back a little bit because of the the, the, the politics, etc., with the university to be able to take them to a higher level. You always saw, in Worcester, you always saw their facility base. You know, they always say, well, they didn't have facilities, etc., etc. But you saw a facility base, you saw what they had, you saw the structure of the gym, the living apartments, everything like this. And knowing what European basketball was a little bit like and how to, how to develop it, it always felt like there was people holding it back or from the top. It wasn't, wasn't so very well, you know, market. it wasn't done very well. And it just, I don't know, working with PJ, you always felt like you were going to sit behind him. He was always going to, and there was nothing going to progress for me there. And, uh, yeah, I just couldn't see a pathway for myself where I could put myself in a challenging position because everything, it just wasn't a challenge. You know, it just wasn't demanding enough. It wasn't, you know, we're not working out at different times. If I wanted to work out, I had to go and do it myself. And then we used to get complained at because I used to put chairs on the floor, stuff like this. And, that, you know, and I was thinking, are you really against the sport or are you actually trying to help it? And that's the sort of feeling I caught got. And I got the feeling as well sometimes with the league that it was like an old gentleman's club. You know, a lot of people have been around for a long time and we were just feeding each other the jobs. And I just did, I thought, if you're young or you want to be adventurous, I just didn't think the BBL was the right place for you to be at that time. <laughs> so so for me, yeah. Were you, at that point, were you thinking, I want to go overseas? Yeah, yeah, I, I wanted to go overseas because as well, when with the NCAA and stuff like that, you get the mesmerizing effect because you see all the, it looks professional, it looks everything, it looks like a work rate thing. I just wanted to go somewhere where I could put myself on the floor because going to all these conferences as well, I remember going to BCA conferences and stuff like that. I remember doing this and the negativity sometimes in the fact where I remember, I love Mark Dunn into pieces, but I remember him, he always drove me because he turned around to me and said, well, you would never make it to the NBA, right? And I thought to myself, who says? 
somebody's got to. You know, that was always my mindset because if I was set to do this, um, I want to do it the right way because my history, it saved my life in a lot of ways. It's probably one of the safest places I actually feel is in a gym, doing that sort of thing. And for you to say that you can't do it when actually, if it, if I didn't have it, I wouldn't be probably going on this path now. You know, it just, it always sort of be counterproductive. It always gave me the feeling that people were trying to hold back. They always wanted to be in their own little coop and stuff like that. And it really kind of put me off of actually wanting to progress. So, and then um, Warren, uh, Warren, what's his name, that used to be technical director as well. Warwick. The Australian. Warwick Ken. Warwick Ken, that's it. Yeah, he said to me as well, we sat down on the thing and I, I explained to him because obviously at that time he was head of the ACE program and stuff like this and we sat with him and he said, listen, you're not going to get that here. So if I was you, I would go. And to me, that was that was just the green light from everybody was saying leave. So in the end, I decided, well, let's try and get out of here. <laughs> and of course, the first the first job you ended up getting was with Canaries Basketball Academy, right? Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah. And was that the only job that you had applied for? Was it there was an opportunity that arose? Like, what was the process of you actually starting I, looking for that first gig overseas? Because you know, as we know, there aren't really that many British coaches that have actually that are actually working overseas. No, it wasn't. It wasn't the fact of I didn't even apply. That's the thing. <laughs> I didn't even apply. <laughs> I just was in the right place at the right time. I turned up to a camp in Birmingham like this. Aston Smith was there. Uh, Rob was there. and But a year ago, one of the earlier years when we had Will Neighbor and stuff like that, uh, we went to the Canarias Basketball Academy when there was a lot of – when Tim Lewis was there, etc. And I saw that there. Joel was there at the time as well, Joel Freeland. And I saw all that developing. And I just thought – Everything that was kind of stuck in my mind was that these guys practice five times a day. I mean, I know that there's no education system that can give you as much knowledge as that. Whatever you do, just being around players, everything like this, how to soak up an environment, how to work so hard that you've actually given yourself the opportunity to do it. Because I always felt in England that I was being held back from really pushing, you know, from really being able to get on the floor with the guys to learn from players as well as coaching staff to learn how players move and everything like this, I always felt that there was always just a it's enough attitude here where when I went there, I was mesmerized by it. It just wants more, more, more. They want to push. They want to push. Yeah. Okay. They treated them like dogs at times, but it, it was pushing. Nobody could ever say that they never got enough court time because that was never the case, you know? And I thought to myself, Spain also was the highest at that time. They were the elite in Europe. They were one of the highest nations in Europe. And I thought to myself, if I can get myself there, then I can go. So I spoke to Aston and I come along. I, I, we went out for one drinking night with Rob. And Rob, we, we got on straight away. Um, but at that time, it was the year where he used to have all the English guys. And Tim Lewis left. And at Christmas, I think nearly 40, 50% of the academy left unpaid. And they went to the Essex thing with Tim. You remember that? Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Essex so, Pirates. So we got on really well. Rob told me the next couple of days, he said, well, I'll be in contact in the next couple of days to see what I can do. But I like you and, uh, you know, we, I feel like you, you can come and work because I like your story and stuff like this. 
two days later, he called and he said, uh, listen, after all the money, nothing, you know, I can't, I can't help you. I can't bring you out here and pay you. Uh, and then a day later, I rang him and I said, can you feed me and can you house me? And then he said, yeah. And I said, well, I just want to, I want to do it. So I went there with nothing, with nobody, and he accepted that. I lived in the, in the same room the first, the first year I was there. I lived in the same room as a massive Lithuanian player. <laughs> Couldn't speak a word of English. His feet stunk and everything. It was terrible times, yeah. You go in as nothing. But to me, that going to that camp, making that relationship, really changed the gap, you know, of where of the next part of my life. So this was 2010, right? So, so Canary's yeah. Basketball Academy started, was it around 2007? So it was only, it was like, it was still in the early formative yeah. years of the academy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was up in Aguimas at that time. Okay. And uh, it was all over sporadic and it was more to the south of the island um, where if you go down to the south of the island, trouble finds you. You know, in the north, it's a lot quieter. Yeah. And if you're trouble, you find it. But trouble find, you know, you can't find trouble that way. Except for one time, I do remember we ran to practice in Tafira, and we were running down to practice. It was about, I don't know, it's like a five, six kilometer run. And we're running down at four o'clock in the morning, half four in the morning, getting ready. And this guy stabbed dead on the side of the road with the wow. and everything like this. But yeah, there's, uh, there's, I've, I've seen some funky stuff up there, but apparently it was something to do with drugs. But it was the most quietest village you've ever lived in. You know, the, it looks like a bunch of aliens with a bunch of 50 kids living in this town, all 6'10 and everything like that. The, the, the neighbors loved us because we were the best security guards around, you know, stuff like that. But it was, it was, you know, moving. When I got there, we were in Tafira, right by the university campus. And so things had calmed down with housing, etc. Otherwise, it was all over the place. And the other, so the juniors were living in a, a, a house, and then the senior players were living in uh, student accommodation down on the university. So things have started to change. So you did you did five years uh, at Canaries Basketball Academy. Like, well, what, what would you say was uh, what was your role and your responsibilities there? How did that grow over time? So I, I, mean, started, I hope you ended up getting actually salaried at some point as well. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I started off with nothing, uh, driving the bus, doing every every single job that you don't want to do, you know, feeding the kids, everything. But my my always my goal was to be amongst the best and to learn from it and to earn my place. So I knew that I was there. I mean, to stay there five years, not many people can live five, nine months with that guy. Because he's the hardest, he's hard, he pushes you, he'll kill you, you know, he'll push you, he'll push the very single limit out of you. But for me at that point in my life, I think that's what I needed. I needed to be around, I started working straight away with the Bigs coach, his name was Arvidas, and he was the ex-player, he played for Moscow and stuff like that, hell of a player he was in his day. And he worked out the Bigs at the same time when I was there, Julian Betko was there as well, he played for Butler. He, he was an NBA prospect, but he had like nine knee surgeries, so that was out. Uh, but fantastic point guard, and uh, he was with the guards. And I was able to flip in between them guys as well as work with it in between everything and look after the kids, drive the kids around. You're working 18 hours a day. 
but for me but for me i think you always have to prove yourself to be in that sort of thing there's so many things that except in something obviously you don't do that for five years but you have to earn your role in some point and you have to understand that you're there to learn probably for the first year and then you as soon as they give you responsibility you take that so i think that's something that's kind of missing and misunderstood about coaching structures kind of these days <laughs> did you did you ever have any like how often were you coming back to the uk visiting you know people here or was it very much the five years that you were there you were just on I mission was, and, and i there? was mainly on the mission i mean i had to come back one of the other reasons was i had to fly back for medication sometimes so wow. but at that time hey it was it was easy because it was 30 euros a flight 35 pounds a flight it was life life to do that was very easy after about three months, you know, Rob saw the value, he again saw the value, so we started being paid and, you know, started earning money and, you know, started doing things. But he would always treat you right. For me, anyway, I was always treated perfectly by him. You know, as hard as it was, he, he, he rewarded you within the right ways. Uh, he was real tough on you, but he rewarded you in the right ways. So trips to New York you know trips everywhere then were spanish championships and yeah everything the the exposure was always there you know i go there because i wanted to work with the best the first generation that we had when i was there the seniors were good i remember we even came back into england on a tour and we played plymouth at the pavilions and stuff like that and we did all of that that was really good uh second year that we were there we had a very good 95 generation we were able to go to the Adidas, uh, you know, next, next generation tournament. tournaments. We were able to establish them for the next three years, them tournaments. Um, because of that, we were able to build more team basketball approach, be more selective with recruiting. Um, and actually, you know, for the next couple of years, the last couple of years, the last year was a little bit different where he expanded and he put too many kids in the house. Then you lose that. You lose that environment of elitism where people are together and fight for each other because it was hard. Um, but yeah, the, the the work rate, the schooling. But to to say which job I had, I think I said I think I had every single job in that academy at some point, you know. Uh, but you know, I ended up being head of big development in the end and head of development too. So you know, and the experiences that I had, honest to God, if I had to do it again, I'd do it again. Yeah. yeah, like obviously, you know, Canaries Basketball Academy, it, it raised a reputation for becoming a sort of factory of, of, of talent that was sending, you know, numerous players to, to NCAA Division One. Mm. Um, when you talk about sort of being in that environment, being around that level of player, player, uh, and I guess also, like, interestingly, what the day to day would be like, like what it would be like for you uh, in terms of what, what your day would be like, but also for, for the players. Um, yeah. what they would be doing to, to improve their game and, and obviously work towards getting that scholarship to the States. Yeah, so for the first couple of years, we used to hunt heavily in Division B. Uh, we used to take... I'm very well known here because uh, at the moment on the national team here, there's eight of the 12 national team players that play for Holland have all been with us. <laughs> so I'm, I'm pretty well known. That's, that's sometimes why I'm, I think I'm here because of that sort of generation. They hated it at the time when we recruited them. But, uh, yeah, we used to go heavily recruiting in Division B because there was always talent there. And what we knew is we had nine months to bleed as much as we could out of them, to change their habits, to change their ability, to change their speed, uh, to change their work rate. 
and to be accepting to get into a Division One scholarship. Uh, that was the first couple of years. And so it, it would start off with 6 a.m. You know, we would be up at 5. We'd practice once at 6. Then there was another practice at 10. Then there was another practice at 1. There was another practice at 4. And then there was evening practice as well. So, you know, <clears throat> it was blood, sweat, and tears. And everybody was in it. You know, there was – it was hard. Don't get me wrong. But – as soon as you start understanding your groups and putting people where we needed to be, I think it was, you know, it was the most beneficial thing for that kid because that kid then was able to change them habits, was able to get a work rate, was able because at some point you can't cheat. You can't cheat the game. You've got to go through something at the end of the day. Some players left after three months because they just understood that that's what I needed to change. And they went back to clubs. And now they play professionally in Europe, you know. So, and a lot of them, I mean, I think over the time that we were there, we've sent 150 kids to Division One schools, I think. And that was the time that I was there. Um, and now there's so many playing pro, I can't, you know. But we always had the top notch from underdeveloped nations, Holland, Slovakia, stuff like, you know, Czech Republic, we always did very well in them sort of regions. Italy, not so much because obviously they have their own. The French, no, never. You know, after Tim left, we didn't really get anything again from England. But also on that point, because also the exchange rate was so good back then, you know, it was one, what was it, one euro, one euro sixty to a pound and stuff like that. So a, a scholarship for or a, a paying package of 12,000 euros now all, all of a sudden becomes. 6,000 for the year, so <laughs> that's a that's not bad just to send anybody out. But I think the good thing that we always had in them days, we had only, whatever the case, if we had 50 players, there was only 10 scholarship players. And the 10 scholarship players always lived the worst. You know, they had never had anything nice. They always were pushed because that was the investment because we were giving something away and, you know, you don't get nothing for free. It's a very hard business structure to run as well because everywhere you go off that island, you have to fly. So it's not like you can put on the bus. You have to put bums on airline seats. And, you know, so it's always a structural nightmare going forward. So budgeting was very difficult, but it was, you know, we were always making sure that you know, the progression of the program was kind of important to where we wanted to be. Who, who were some of the most talented players that you worked with during your time there? Uh, I have to say... Obviously, Joel when he was around, Joel Freeland, he well, was he, obviously he, would, he was how come he would have come back or he was in and out. He was in and out. Um, he then he went to Malaga, so he was gone. But he would always come back in the summer, still because he obviously lived in Canaria. Um, he him uh, we had uh, Vladimir Borunsky who now plays in. Uh, uh, he was he was the most talented kid. He now plays uh, Peña, a Juventus in Badalona. Uh, he's been a couple of years now, I think, uh, ACB. He he used to, every day, he would do something that was astonishing. And he just, his work rate was fantastic. You know, he was dedicated to everything. But then every time a college coach used to come, he used to just <laughs> shit the bed and never play very well. He just couldn't play. He would turn the ball over everything. So, you know, he was he was the guy that was really, really, really good. Um, finally got his shot because he, we sent him to Pratt 
development college, uh, JUCO in the States, where he was able to calm down, went to TCU, and he's, and he's building his career now. But there's been a lot of guys. There's a couple of guys that are still out there, a Mexican at the moment. Uh, there are so many guys. It was, it was hard. And the reason I loved it as well, especially being with bigs, we always had a group of 10, 11 bigs all the time. So the work rate was always there. We always had a group of specific guards. So the work rate was guard orientated or something like that. There was always something that we were able to manage and manifest. And then we were able to break down into teams. And we always knew which generation was going to be elite coming through. The one we had to push that year, the second year, the third year. Um, yeah, because always our goal, our goal was always to beat Gran Canaria and to dominate the island. That was always our goal. And we we also worked with Canterbury, which is the other team on the island. We, we built ourselves together because we always wanted to beat them. You know, we wanted to overcome them. And the year we finally got them, we got to eighth position in the Spanish championships. So the year after, you then, if there's, and Gran Canaria as well finished sixth, we finished eighth in the Spanish championships so we we the next year you're allowed three teams off the island to go to the national championships yeah okay the next year we finished top canterbury finished second and grand canaria finished third so if we didn't <laughs> get to eighth we would have stopped the canaria uh, grand canaria going to that championship and they've been to that championship 47 years in in a row so you know, that was always our goal, but at that time it made youth development basketball on the island better. And that's where something that I learned very quickly in the, the value of competition between, you know, neighbors and stuff like that. But we were always driving for something. We were always pushing for something. And I think that that was the energy that I always needed to stay. And of course, there was this Sports Illustrated article in 2016, uh, which basically uh, alleged potential links between, uh, you know, placing players from Canary's Basketball Academy at certain colleges that have taken out tours with this tour touring company that had links with the the academy. Obviously, there a lot of that a lot of that happened during a period that you were there. Like, were you aware of like any underhanded dealings? Like, what was kind of your take on on that whole situation? On answer, what we were we were always in a position where at one stage we had every school from the ACC sit on the sidelines except for Duke and North Carolina. You know, there's a lot of time where we have colleges from Maryland and the stuff like that. Uh, we have beneficial factors where, you know, we worked with Rick Bettino and then we all started to wear Adidas and stuff like this. But the underhand in dealing wasn't, for me, didn't come from that. We, we earned everything that we kind of got, the Under Armour package that we got. is because, you know, the dedication that we had sending these guys to, to Division One schools and... Uh, you know, we we were more interested on the day-to-day -day more than, you know, anything else. We kind of liked the criticizing and the, every everything that was kind of criticized for us, like the food sucked, we changed the food, the practice, we changed everything. You know, we tried to make everything more professional every year. And I think what that article did was highlight probably a dysfunctional NCAA more than what our program was doing. So in some ways... And the underhanded dealing was never never pushed in our faces. Uh, we just developed with the kids, and for us, you know, we we, we took the, we took the rap, but it, it never fell. 
the academy never fell. We never went, you know, we never let it bother us. We just kept on moving forward because even at that time, our structure then was towards actually competing within Spain um, because we already had the talent rate to be able to do that, introducing more kids from Spanish basketball because the twist of Spanish basketball changed as well because of the money, the recession and everything like this. Um, kids came to us because we were able to access Division One colleges for them. So then kids, we were started getting kids from Mercia and stuff like this that wanted to maybe go visit, you, uh, go, to, go to school in the United States as that was their father's wishes. So we were able to then twist the trend and then become a, a club-based team. I think that really helped as well when we went to Levoro with that one year that we tried to do that. But the costs, again, the sponsors didn't really work out. But, yeah. So it did it. Any underhand in dealings? No, not from what I saw personally. Um, but, you know, we well, they can write what they like. <laughs> so, well, what ultimately led to you deciding to leave? You know, it sounds like it was a massively positive experience for you. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, why did you decide to sort of make the next step? We played in the Spanish Championships. Uh, we got to the semifinals. We played uh, Seville. Um, that was the year that Luka Doncic won everything at that tournament. Um, that was the end of the generations where uh, I, I remember Menno Dykstra, Jordan Blount, uh, a couple of others. They were the last kids that I kind of went in with as well as uh, mentored them. And we kept on going. And then it, the, the academy was changing. It got too big for me. There was too many people there. You lost that work rate of players because we were allowing – too many bad players in the gym because it went more money orientated a little bit. And I didn't like that. I, I was always there. I just wanted to work with the best. You know, I can go anywhere and you can work with average judge. You know, I wanted people working with purpose and stuff like that. The more people that came in and they were buying their way into the academy, it didn't, you know, it, it just didn't work. And I think in that way, it kind of lost it at that championship you realize that you're never going to beat Madrid in the championship. You know, the furthest we got was third, never going to get any higher, you know. So I think to myself that, okay, because there's always the limitation of money and everything like that, I, I just felt like it was time then to take everything I learned and try to put it into the next level, which was professionalism. Uh, professional basketball and try just to open up another chapter I also got to a very comfortable feeling where I could actually stay there for the rest of my life and for me that makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable because then I'm going back on what I said that I wanted to keep pushing you know I want to do that when I'm 60 and the sun's out and I can go back and lie on the beach that's perfectly fine with me but I wasn't ready for that point so for me yeah that was the time I just thought it's time to move on uh, there was nothing there that it was done for me. And, uh, I, you know, I, I didn't, you know, it was time to really go and try something else, take everything I learned and put it into a different context. And you ended up in Belgium? Yes. So I went from sun, 22 degrees, to grey skies, chocolate and beer. So very, everything's grey in Belgium as well, all the walls, everything like this. It's one of the most depressing places in the world, especially when you come from seeing the sun nearly 300 days of the year. Yeah, but yeah we, we went into it. I actually got that job. I, again, no applying for a job. 
Um, I was working on a camp with a guy called Dominic Rossi, who owns this Corolla. So it's this uh, individual development thing. He does a lot of work as well with ladies' basketball. He's got a lot of the Belgium cats and also some of the the Belgium lions working with him. And we did a camp with him. And he he mentioned the name of Thibaut Petit, who was head coach at that time of Pepin Stair. Um, and uh, we went from Thibaut Petit. He, we called him. He said, this guy, uh, Dominic said, this guy could be a really good assistant for you. And uh, he said, sure, where can we meet? And at the time, his son was actually going through sort of cancer treatment in the hospital. So I actually met him in the hospital and we spoke about how we could work together next season. He went to his board. I came back home for a bit, uh, just for a couple of weeks. He called me back and he said, hey, we've got a Eurostar ticket for you tomorrow. Do you want to come? And again, yeah, let's go. So I opened up myself, just packed my bags again. And went on a different adventure into into the you know into the world of the Euro Millions League. How did that differ to, from what you'd been used to in in uh, a Canaries Basketball Academy? Like the difference was, in culture and then obviously on the court as well, like just the difference in environment. The difference on the uh, the difference on the court is you quickly learn when you go from elite youth to elite elite adults is that they understand what they're doing. And the level of mistakes and the level of this is my game, this is who I am, uh, I am this player, I'm being paid to do this, means more than maybe you think you can change. You know, you think, oh, well, he can get this shot, he can get that shot and stuff like that. Well, no, this guy is elite at doing one or two things where it, in youth basketball, it was very, very certain until the last couple of years let's try and train everybody to do everything. You know, we've got to be good at everything. And I learned very quickly that that's definitely not the case when you go into professionalism because simply, you know, you're brought in to do one or two things and be very good at one or two things because that coach has a system that you apply to and that's it. So the strength of him is the strength of his recruitment. And I learned that very quickly from trying to teach everybody everything. And the funny thing now is... We have a kid called Shane Hammock. He plays at Charleroi, but he's also with the Dutch national team too. We used to teach him everything, spin move, everything like this. He would never use it, just Euro step in, out, finish. And they do it all the time. Everybody knows what to do. And being a young coach thinking, well, you've got to do this and this as well. It was a very big, it was a very big understanding straight away that these guys are pros. Yeah, there's a difference. These guys know what they're doing. These guys understand game, you know, the limit of mistakes as well that you make, you know, and how they cost you. You don't have extra possessions where you can gain more advantages. You have to be more specific. And then everything rushed back with what Jimmy used to say and all this, that, you know, just just demand on one skill set and perfect it till your body says, I can't do it anymore. And if I figure out a way to go around it and do it again, or if you go into a different team, you have to adjust to the team. And that's one thing I will say about Joel. You can tell you can tell that his elite development also happened in Malaga, etc. Because he went from Malaga, where he was the leading scorer in the Euroleague that year. Then he goes and plays behind Demarcus Aldridge and you know Damian Lillard. Doesn't touch the damn ball. But for his credit, because of his assignment, because of his mental structure, because of his want to be there. He turned to be one of the best defensive players on that team, which Demarcus Aldridge and you know Damian Lillard said we can't live without this guy because of the way he's working. 
you know, and that character became very apparent from wanting everything, trying to succeed with everybody. And there's something that I believe as well within British basketball that we don't do enough. We don't select. Everybody talks about at the moment positionless basketball. Well, when you get to the highest level and put elite, you still have a point guard. <laughs> you still have a center that can dominate. When you go to the FIBA World Cup, you see it. Rudy Gobert, you look at that French team. They're all the same, you know. They have a point guard. They have a playmaker. They have a shooter. And everybody is structured into the way to play the game because the game doesn't change. And I learned that was the biggest culture shock straight away for me, trying to be on the floor all the time, doing too much. And now we have to be on the floor with a shorter time because we have to include rest and also recovery and everything like this and be exact to everything we want to do. So instead of wasting your time with 15 different things in an hour, we did 45 minutes of one or two things very, very well. And that to me was the, that's the biggest change where I thought, yeah, okay, you're at a different level here. Did it, did it, I mean, I assume that a lot more of your focus became on X's and O's as well. Were you doing a lot, trying to do a lot of player development stuff still as well? You doing player, we were doing player development, but it was more team development. It's more, how do we get the best out of the team? And this is where the question you asked me earlier, this is where the university stuff comes back and helps you out. It doesn't give you the answer, but what it gave you was a rough idea of little clues that you can seek out when grouped about dynamics, everything like that. You can start understanding, reading players. And because I spent so much time with players on the floor, helping them develop, helping them learn, learning different learning styles within kids at the academy, watching them go through smiling to crying to everything to then succeed in and, and belonging to their dream. Um, I think... I was able to adapt very quickly and understand that, yeah, okay, this is who he is. This is what we need from him. This is what we're going to have to get out of him. But then how also do we keep to coach his schedule of how we do it? I mean, it was fantastic working with Thibaut because he didn't speak a word of English. He could read English, but he didn't really speak a word of English when we got there. You know, he wouldn't really speak to me or anything like this. But so what we did is how we communicated is every Monday after games, we did Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And in the morning, I would have the individual sessions with the guys. I would come in an hour early and write on the board everything I wanted to say. And we learned to communicate that sort of way. So even within all of this that you'll never get out of a coaching manual or anything like this, it was just a different way of how to survive within a sport, which which is probably the toughest job that you ever actually do, you know. But I think... Having that pressure, having that pressure to win and lose, because that's the other big difference thing. You are now judged. Instead of what you do seven days a week with the guys, you are judged on 40 minutes. That is it. Your job is judged. Your, the way you are, your coaching career is judged on 40 minutes. And I think that was the big culture shock for me too. Did you go, you know, having, having then having had that experience of, of both, you know, working with elite, elite youth and and then also having worked in the pros with with men with professionals um did that potentially like in terms of your own direction did that make you think you know i like the pro stuff i want to focus more on the pros or has doing the youth stuff always been a focus like obviously looking at your cv there's you've done a lot of the roles that you've had a very um i feel like that they seem to be very youth focused a lot of youth development focused but like in terms of your your longer term aspirations is it to be in the pros working with professionals or, or would you say that it's more about working in development roles like helping elite youth develop? 
I, I think I think even in some ways it's helping develop teams as well, you know, helping develop clubs. Every team I've gone to as well have always been on the cusp, on the low, on the low side, and they they always have. When I looked inside, you think, okay, this has got a lot of potential. Okay, if we can start manifesting, building structure within the team, we're actually able to build this team back up. You know, Pep and Stair was a, a very well supported, it was a tiny town. There was nobody there ever. Uh, but all of a sudden, the basketball's on, and all of a sudden, there's five, 6,000 people in that arena. And you're thinking, where the hell did these people come from? You know, so it, it was very, very well supported. They were Euro Cup. They were, you know, it was, it was very, very high level, you know, for high passionate and stuff like this. But they, they struggled before with money. They nearly went bankrupt, and then they came back. The fans saved them. So, and then they played in that final year that I was with them as well, the final two years that I was with them. And we were able to build something, but we just couldn't, we couldn't find the budget. But I've kind of been, I've always been interested in, I always believe that youth can actually bring you in, but I always know that you have to have professionals around them if you want to be able to change the balance and build. Because it's not just me that can say you have to do this. The, the, the aspiring from their own peers and everything like that is way more important than just me. So I was always looking for that club that we can kind of develop and bring forward. And there's always a project and that job will go forward working as a team. And that sort of thing, I think I've picked up from both sides, understanding the performance level, because I need that hierarchy of performance level and then being able to push the right elite youth into that sort of system. So going pro, it was kind of always in my mind that I would try and develop the, the club as well, as well as, the, as well as being at that high level. One of the things actually that, that uh, made me raise an eyebrow uh, in the notes that uh, you sent me beforehand was like your, um, essentially when you're talking about development, you, you mentioned uh, working from top to bottom. And of course, I've, well, yeah. you know, a lot of people always talk about building out the grassroots first. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I don't know exactly your feelings about that, but it'd be interesting to kind of hear you talk about it. Like, what do you mean by, you know, development leading from the top to the bottom? Like, do you think that if you're, well, you know, specifically, <coughs> let's, I mean, let's link it back to British basketball. If you're talking about developing British basketball, do you think the most important thing is to have the strong professional league uh, or strong professional teams to them? And then that will trickle down to then building the base. Or do you think it's the other way around? Like when you're talking about development, what exactly do you mean when you're talking about top to bottom? I think you always need a pool of players underneath. But I think if them players don't have something to aspire to, to look up to, I think they're going to get to a certain way and then lock out. I think NCAA basketball within the UK has benefited from it because you're able to sow a twinkle sharp, you know, like this. But when I was younger, I wanted to play for Worthing because you could see professionalism in front of your eyes. I can remember watching games, you know, when we were younger, we were watching games of 12,000 people at the MEN, you know, watching these type of games, watching that type of level. And I always feel that I, I just believe, like I said before, elite players always find a way. They find their own path. Yeah, high elite players. But talented guys, they always search environments. Okay. They want to be part of that environment, and that environment will then boost their ability. What how they do because they're always competing against, like in CBA, they were competing against their own sides. They're competing. They got to focus. They understand where they're doing. It makes sense to them. 
they can see progression. They can see professionalism in the locker room. They can see everything filtered down. They can see when they go to practice at 15, if they're working with in a big group, they can see working. And it's not just coaches that are telling them what to do. It's actually the whole environment which is shaping that player, understanding professionalism, you know, stuff like this. I take, take for example, for me, Cameron, Cameron Hildreth, okay, right now. Okay, you have an elite basketball league and he plays in ABL with his dad. Okay, just for one. All right. So to me, there's a standard issue there because the highlight nation is going to see something that, you know, he's going to be able to get all these highlights. But the one thing I'd love about Cameron, and it's no, no justification of him going to Wake Forest or anything like that. But the unique talent I feel that Cameron has is his ability to be competitive. Okay, he has a competitive nature that goes way beyond anything else. That guy wants to win. He reminds me a lot of Luke. Where Luke would kill to Talk win. About Luke Nelson. Nelson, yeah, he would kill to win. I'm asking myself, when progressing these kids, really for a professional level of environment, do you send them to an environment that is is, is focused on you know the highlights and everything like this, and playing at a level where they where you play for three months only a year? where the competitiveness is more developed around school, you're only really going to play 30, 40 games, 40 games max, okay? You only do play for three months of the year. The rest of it's practice, you know, into whatever, unless you come back for national team and stuff like this. Or do you want to go to in a competitive environment, which is professionalism, which he suits right away because also – Another first saying I like to say is, "What's the point of getting? What's the point of going to college when you can already get paid?" <laughs> you know, for me, and being able to be harbored in that environment which suits him, which feeds him, being around older players that are going to push him. You know, that are going to the level is always going to push him. It's always going to make him compete. He's always going to have to be accountable for what he does because he's being paid, and that type of pressure because he has professional ability and uh, habits, everything like that, to me, that top-down approach with elite guys is the way that we develop basketball to a higher standard as well, you know? So for me, that is a big, big thing when I talk about top-down, because if you don't see what's above you, then you get lost, you know, then something else becomes attractive. You're not allowed to grow anything else. And I think, to me, that's really, really important that the, the kid has direction. You know, like Jeremy Sochin right now. Yeah, Baylor's there. But now ears will start talking because he keeps on playing well. Yeah, he keeps on being invited to national teams. He keeps on being around these pros. This is a lifestyle now and it's reality for his life. He can actually become a very high-level professional basketball. And why go to college? What, to go to the NBA? You can go to the NBA any way you like these days, as long as you're in a good, structured environment. you just got to be put yourself in a place where you can work hard, and that hard work turns into luck. You know, but it's just tramming that down. Do we give a kid, do you give a kid that situation where, hey, you're going to play for so many, or you're going to be pushed every day? And I just think looking at the kid, being developed with the kid and then providing the kid that hierarchy. So that top-down approach to me and not making it false halfway through, you know, by saying, here's, 
here, here's the, the high level, where actually the NCAA is a very high level, yes, but it's also a high level which is not judged on mistakes, not judged on, you know, you're not going to lose your job, you're not going to do anything. So the, the pressure only to be in school, and now with this transfer system where you transfer in and out to any school you want, there still is, if it doesn't work for you, just move on. And I think to me, at a top level, that doesn't exist and you're able to stress that a bit more and actually find the real pro because, like I said, this job isn't for everybody, you know. Mm. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it is, it's a difference to what everybody thinks. But I just think having lower level, when you're at a low level and you have a big pool, that's a lot of volunteers, that's a lot of voices, that's a lot of different structures, that's a lot of different ways to go. And maybe, you know, you, you've got to just be direct and show these guys. But there's, if there's nothing coming down, then what can these kids look at to say, actually, I want to do this, you know? Yeah. So you, you ended up uh, hooking on with the Armenian national team. Yeah. That's a that's a, <laughs> a random country that, that was, like that, that not many people have, have been involved with basketball-wise, uh, especially from the UK. How, how did that come about? So we got that through an agent. Our agent was Savag Kuchin. He's Armenian, and he's Tebow's agent that I work with uh, at uh, Pep and Step. And we already signed our next job to go to Liege, which was Pep and Step's rival, and they didn't really like that. But at the same time, he he uh, he said they came along and said, "Well, listen, we got this project. Uh, we want to we want to qualify for the European Championships, as well as take the U20s." Um, keep them in Division B. We don't want to drop them into Division C. Uh, we were very lucky in the division uh, in the men's side that we had a guy called Brian Dunstan. And if you know him, he plays for Aladua FS <laughs> in the, in the EuroLeague. He played for us in Fever Small Nations, which, you know, turned some people's eyes. Yeah, but this, this guy, he, he taught me so much of how professionalism is, is, is a, is a work rate is everything he would never we, we used to sit down at the hotel where we, we lived in a hotel for like three months um the armenian people they were so proud of every single job because that was the only job they had we lived in a little shanty shanty area and stuff like that in the hotel and he would eat everything in front of everybody he would do the right thing he would make sure he knew exactly where he was you know he was trying to develop the thing the same with us and the character of the guy was just unbelievable he would accept everybody for who they were and I, I don't think I've ever been I learned so much probably in the in three months being around players like him that you know he's uh it, it was fantastic and just to be a part of a culture where you walk outside and all of a sudden the cow walks in front of you you know you're running across the mountains there and dogs are chasing you it's like it's it's, it's surreal one of the most beautiful countries as well the natural beauty and everything like that but the time that we had there we played in the, obviously the two championships one in greece and then the men's uh we had a kid as well called Stephen Enoch at that time and he, he now plays in the acb he plays at dan Petz's club in uh in uh, uh in spain so he uh it was for me again it's again that project mentality of somebody coming to us and saying we want to bring armenian basketball back because obviously after genocide the armenians split everywhere we wanted to reunite the country and bring back the money you know or bring back the people to armenia and say that you know we're back open for 
for business you want to live here and stuff like that and bring a culture of Armenian basketball because they loved it. So how when we had to play the do that summer. Huh? Uh, we finished with one. We won the FIBA, uh, Small Nations Cup, and uh, in Division B, we stayed in Division B and we finished eighth. So, so we we had training camp for not very long. I mean, the the division the the, the men's were a lot easier because of Brian and we had another guy in Skip Lake. He he played really well. They were more cool very key players and we had three very good Armenian players as well that were also out in the States but our, our, our junior team was actually American Armenian as well and FIBA allowed us to run with that and uh, so it was it was perfectly fine but it was a great all time it was just a great experience from different nations to see how we you know to be able to and their program was you know they didn't have anything and they made it work. And now because of that tournament and stuff like that, they've got new gyms, etc. And they were able to build going forward. So it was, you know, it was something really proud to be a part of. And uh, it was really good fun. So after after that, you, you ended up, uh, as you just alluded to, you, you stayed in Belgium, but with a different club, which was a rival club. Yeah, Liège. Yeah, and and that was actually that was more of a youth development role with them, or was it an assistant coach role as well? We were assistant and I, we took on the youth as well. So my role was working with the top team and the youth and structuring the youth development thing. Um, there, uh, I think when we got taken on there, the management had a different idea. Um, and they actually got rid of me and kept Tebow. <laughs> so, yeah, so there was definitely a difference of opinion. But as time goes on, we knew that it was Sasha that he wanted and he wanted to bring in Sasha with Tebow, and then Tebow also got fired too. Um, but it was just to build the stats, and it was a real rough, rough couple of months. But we played very well. But it was just, it, it never felt right. It didn't feel they never made you feel welcome or anything like that. We were kind of doing a job, and you know, he Tebow took me. The, the management didn't want them. I went with him. He was my, I was his choice and they tried to divide us a bit and it, it ended up a bit wow. <laughs> horrible and it all kicked off and you know it was uh, it was it was a rough couple of months uh, for the next couple of it was it just wasn't a nice experience especially after we just come after that Armenian experience and then also a great experience in Pep and Stare as well. So it was it was really tough but we really grew together. And uh, now he coaches in Montpellier and with the women in Montpellier. So now he's gone back that way. He went back to ladies basketball. But So you went on to another Belgian club. I assume that wasn't with him. I did, yeah. I went on with another club with Leuven. So uh, in Leuven, we played, the, we finished out, we took over from the coach that got fired. Um, we finished off really good that season. We missed out by the playoffs by one game, uh, which was really good. The second season, we started to build our own team. Uh, started off very well. And then fractions started to happen within the team. Uh, we had one English player that decided to fight with a Dutch guy in practice. And management started to turn because of that. And uh, um, it was, uh, we ended up, they, they ended up because they saw me the powerful one over the coach that they hired. They switched our roles. And I went to head coach and he went to assistant. And after that, it kind of never recovered. Uh, we got through till Christmas. Fareed left. 
And then I was coming back on the Eurostar and they called me and they said, you're no longer required. So I was halfway to Belgium. I was actually coming through Lille when I picked up the phone and they said, uh, you've been replaced by Eddie Castiles like this. I didn't like it. Uh, so I checked my contract because they went in the paper before. I, um, I demanded that I stayed and made Eddie move out the apartment till contracts were settled and I left. <laughs> then I left. It took about two months, but yeah, it was, uh, but you know something out of them last two experiences, it, it shapes you. It makes you understand that, you know, this isn't, this is a real, this is the real cutthroat part of the business. And then you look at, sometimes I feel very jealous sometimes when I watch the BBL and these guys have got jobs for how many years, but we don't develop the game. You, you, you just see what I mean. And it, you just think there's a difference as well. I would rather be in that type of environment where I'm able to adapt to environments, be able to learn, than actually just have it simple and going on. I would still never go back to them Worcester days because you know you're going to be okay. I would rather live like this because now I've give, gathered, you've gathered three or four or five different different impacts of the way life is in this business, and it's completely, it's completely unstable. But I, again, I wouldn't change it for the world. <laughs> I was going to say, like, you know, your CV is very much like a professional player. It's like you're changing team yeah. every single season. There is very yeah. little stability. You're going to finish a year. You're not going to necessarily know where you're going to be next year. Yeah. Um, you know, it's tough to find full-time coaching gigs, right? And that's the thing with, with players. At least there's 12, there's 12, 12 roster spots on every team. Well, sometimes more, but 12 roster spots on, on every team, right? With coaches, there's only a couple. Um, there's only a couple, yeah. I mean, I remember sitting in a... We were sitting with a coaches meeting in Belgium and Dario, who's head coach of Ostend, he said, we have to be more together because there's only 10 jobs in this country. You know, like in the BBL, there's 11 jobs. That's it. You know, and half of it is whatever it is. And if we want to take our, our, if we want to make our profession professional, we actually do have to work together and start to work together, being a coaches union and stuff like this, to try and be able to not to protect ourselves, but to be able to put pressure on clubs to stop signing you for nine months, stuff like this. You know, you, as soon as you always fear that one year contract because anything can happen within that one year. You can start off very well. But also the players understand that as well, that they can change a contract very quickly and go against you. And you've got the one-year contract, so you're out. You know, and you haven't got time. When a coach has a three-year contract, <laughs> the players can't act like that with him because they know he's too expensive to get rid of. So you're going to have to work with that. So it's a different balancing act that you have to, you have to try and find. And one thing that I've definitely learned, definitely, definitely learned over all these experiences is if you do not get on with the people above and you're trying to build something, they must under, you must understand each other, you know, the direction you want to go. And if there is no, you know, there is no forward thinking with that, then we have to go. When I was with New Heroes uh, in Den Bosch, we started off like that, no problem. Then they changed the technical director at the club and he wanted to go completely different direction. So that left me gone. You know, so it was the same with Devon, gone when we were there, you know, and yeah, stuff like say, that. Were you there at you the know, same he, time as Devon Van Oostrom? Yeah, I was there with Devon, yeah. So it was like, it, as soon as it changes, boom, you can be out. And it's that type of, that type of, you know, you live out of a bag and just, you. so every day 
people say, why do you work so hard? Because you can't leave anything on the table. You know, mm-hmm. you've really got to go in and you've got to be able to, you have to be kind of dominant. You have to be kind of thing. You know, you have to be progressive. You have to believe in yourself and you really have to work at it because, you know, you, you take any type of, if you leave it for another day or something like that and something goes wrong that you can't control, like player injuries, anything, you start losing that seven-day-a-week great job, how you're developing the team. If these people don't see Ws, more Ls than Ws, forget it what you've done the whole week, that 40 minutes, that could kill you, you know? we were When I was with Leuven, we played Charleroi, and we beat Charleroi twice in the same season at their place. And Leuven never won in Charleroi for the whole existence, and then we won twice. And I remember walking in with the coach at the time, and he said, this is my last coach. I'm getting fired straight after this because they lost to us twice. And that was the value of paying, you know. But that, again, when you're around players that you're paying 15000 20000 a month sometimes, you know, you've got to go. Yeah. Do, do you feel like so, the, the, the instability of, like, do you think it's sustainable? Like for you personally, do you feel like this is something that you can keep on doing for, you know, for forevermore or whatever in, in pursuit of that living that coaching dream? Or like, are you aspiring I, to one day be able to get a multi-year deal somewhere where you can have some stability uh, and, and sort of build a base? I, I would like to definitely do that. But I think I think that the main thing you do now is everything you learned before, don't make the same mistake again. Don't go into deals or stuff like that. Don't go in as opportunists. Yeah, I've gone through 10 years, 10, 15 years in this business now. I'm not looking for an opportunity anymore. You know, I'm looking for actual, we're going in to do this and that's what we do. You know, I think that's something that has changed for me. So all of that experience has now given me a clear path to say before I even walk into the first day of the job, we've actually structured stuff that we need to go on going further and I suppose for me, being here, I took this job too because also it gives me the ability to to test myself on everything I learned before. So can I do it? Can I build this here? And maybe when it's done in two, three years' time, hopefully, I move on to something better. And I think then you can use each other as you use yourselves. I don't think there's just one way that you're going to come in and make make the change. No, you're going to have to work with these people. You're going to have to change mindsets and stuff like that because they do think of things differently. Otherwise, they wouldn't hire you, you know. <laughs> so, so it's a it's a very very demanding sport. It's a very very demanding game, and it's a very very intense culture. But I think that's the that's the thrill of it. It's like being a boxer. Why would you fight? you know if you didn't need to or you didn't want to because why would you get punched in the face it's the same sort of thing why would you put up with this stuff yeah if you didn't really love it you know so if it wasn't a part of you if it didn't make you tick and everything i do with it makes me tick the good times the bad times everything you just dust yourself off it's learning it's experience it's actually trying to be something that you know you're good at you just need to find the right situation to be in so yeah. And it's hard coming from where we come from, you know, because who are we in this world, you know? Yeah, of course. I mean, no player, didn't play, yeah. yeah. Do, and, do, do you feel like, uh, you know, you left the UK over 10 years ago now. Uh, is there any part of you that feels frustration with the British game for not being able to provide opportunities that would allow you to stay at home and develop, their, yeah. develop here as a coach? 
massive because it, you know you ask them to go home i i would go even in that top down approach huh you know i think it's a massive everybody talks about pushing the younger ones into the bbl i think i think to to sustain a very good bbl as well you have to bring these guys back you know once they're done with their careers so you've got the list the list that you wrote today of uh, the 25 guys you know that plays for the in the qualifiers. This, yeah, yeah, 24 this. in the GB squad, yeah. All right, so you've got Miles and everybody, Ovi and stuff like that. How can we make the BBL professional that we can bring them back as veterans, keep them in the level, but also they've been like with me, absorbing in this culture of actual basketball and the way it is, yeah, at the higher level, and they can pump them standards back into clubs. You know, so like when Kieran Kieran quit and he came back to Glasgow, the biggest culture shock was him. Was you know we have to do this, we have to do that, and I understand what he says where he feels spoiled, but no, because that's a level, that's the standards that them levels hold, and that's why he's played European competition for so long, because it's not that he's spoiled, it's just that's the that's that's us holding ourselves to high standards. So can we? I get frustrated sometimes that. It feels like that they don't they don't want to push the game, you know. They don't want to develop the game. Europe is right on their doorstep. European, when, you, when you say they, who are you talking about? BBL clubs. I, the BBL as well, yeah. I think it was always a it was always annoyance to me with the BBL because you were you would play a competition and win no money. You know, you know, even just the introduction of Sky Sports again, you know, the professionalism that comes with being on Sky Sports. The camera angles, the different things that it does to the game, but still we need to improve what's on the floor. You know, you always know when you go into a bad nation of basketball sometimes because basketball is the problem. Yeah, everybody else can do the little bits around it, but when basketball is the thing that's holding you back, your nation's not very good at that. When basketball's driving and the hardest, because the hardest job in basketball is the other bits. The basketball's the easy bit, you know. So it's how you manage both spectrums and how you keep that high standard, how you keep coming back, how we bring the old players back as well as so then we can introduce younger players in generations. They can still gain experience. We can push in. Then we're not bringing in first-year Americans all the time. We're bringing in second, third-year Americans that's got a little bit of experience. You can see the difference this year with Dirk Williams, right? From the first years he was with Sheffield, he goes away and he comes back. He's a completely different cat. At the moment, you know, he's a, you can see the level he's risen and bringing, you know, bringing third, four year in Belgium. We, we could you could never get away with rookie Americans, you know, they because the, the Belgium young guys were smart enough to play the game. So the rookie Americans would come in and they wouldn't be they wouldn't understand how to play the game the way, you know, the toughness and everything that we had in this. So the good Americans that always come in with second, third years. And then from that, they went on, like we had Julian Gamble, who now plays, a, you know, in, in Italy and stuff like that. So we, all the time, we always had a structure going forward. So it's, it is frustrating because I think acceptability and everything, I mean, when you take competition level in this country, the competition gap in the league, in the BBL, is actually more condensed than here. Here you have top five and then the rest. Yeah, but that top five, three of them play in Europe. 
So there's always that higher standard to chase to. There's always something. There's always extra games. There's always a reason to have youth. There's always a reason to have bigger rosters. There's always something which always will, in the end, will continue to develop the game. But now they've got to work on a way where the bottom catches up with the top. And they've just signed, a, uh, here they've signed a, an agreement with the Belgium League and they're going to go a Benelux League and top five in Belgium play top five here. So now, again, it's increasing the level. And hopefully with that, the professionalism, because it lacks professionalism here, there's more professionalism in Belgian basketball, putting that together and you're, you know, you're making teams actually work for the thing where sometimes you feel like in England that the teams have got a little bit stale. You know, it's a little bit stale. It's a little bit the same and the level does increase and it, and it just doesn't really end up. I mean, now we've got arenas, teams playing in arenas that are big enough to play European competition. I think teams overthink a little bit about doing that, not too secure about rosters, even though they change players every, you know, seven, eight weeks. <laughs> you can do that with European competition too. So to be able to qualify, but, you know, it's, I, I find it a very different, a different culture shock for me, you know, and that, that competitism and maybe sometimes you do need that energy of maybe you might lose your job you know, to maybe get a little bit better. So, you know, I can see the benefits and also I can see the sadness of actually losing your job. So, <laughs> Yeah, of course. <laughs> I'm, I'm aware of time here. So let's, let's uh, okay. get some quick-fire questions just to start wrapping up. Um, starting with, it's a question I always like asking people, uh, uh, the best British junior player that you've ever seen, who is it and why? Uh, the best British junior player I've ever seen uh, could be Devon. Devon with just that characteristic, that characteristic ability to play make, uh, his athletic ability when he was younger as well, the determination, the rugged competitiveness about him, the thing where he was a bit, I always love players where they say they're a little bit misunderstood and they're a bit, they're a little bit of an arsehole and stuff like that, because you know, that's just competitism. That's want, wanting to be. I think he's one of them. I think Ryan as well, Ryan for me, he, he's, probably one of the most talented people that maybe should have gone a little bit further. Ryan Richards. Yeah, yeah, he, he definitely is. But for true professionalism that I've seen with my eyes, it's got to be Joel for me. And like I said, he went from he went from nothing. He went from a store, a store stacker to Spain, to Jimmy. He worked with Jimmy for nine months, then to Rob, then to Gran Canaria, then to Malaga, became one of the highest scorers in EuroLeague. Tested himself, went to the NBA, couldn't play because he couldn't get in the offensive thing, changed his game, found himself in the starting five, and then obviously injuries finished him out. So, But to me, for, for that type of calibre of player, I think it has to go down to Joel. Uh, who's the best uh, coach that you've worked with? The best coach I've worked with? Um, best coach I've worked with? It was probably, I would say... Probably Thibaut. Thibaut was definitely one, but also uh, Arvidas too when, when I was in Gran Canaria. I didn't have that many deep coaching connections that we really work with, but day-to-day -day was probably Thibaut. I think as well because he was very tactically very good, very good understood competitiveness and stuff like that. 
And we just had a different relationship where you can't speak to each other, but you can communicate. And I think that was something maybe special going forward. Yeah. But and, and as well, I have to drop Jimmy's name into that because technically I've never seen anybody that's so demanding to be good. And it's no wonder that his son is as good as he is. So, <laughs> What's your favorite basketball memory? Uh, my favorite basketball memory, I think... Probably Worthing Bears winning the three-peat at Wembley, coming into the playoffs eight, eighth, and we went. I went with Mark, Mark Mills. We went on that whole Wembley Wembley weekend experience, and I think that for me as a fan was probably my best memory there. Uh, going up against Luka Doncic in the uh, playing Real Madrid and beating them in Tenerife, that was a pretty good memory for me as well. Um, but we, you know, they were too good when it comes to the Spanish championships at the end of the year, and probably coaching at the uh, ANGT with the, you know, with the level of youth that was there. So they're probably three of my favourite memories. On the, on the topic of Mark Mills, are we going to see a return of uh, Make Him Take Him podcast anytime soon? Yeah, you, everybody keeps on asking that. I think we've been sitting on the fence because of the craziness of the world. Everybody's got their own opinion and, you know, we kind of like to stay outside the box a little bit, you know. One thing I love about doing that po- podcast with him is it's like we're just sitting in the pub talking about basketball. I think it works having a coach and an ex-owner sort of talking to each other. Uh, we've known each other since school, so it, it just flows. But I enjoy doing it. I keep on ribbing him. I see some stories coming up and especially the stuff with London Lions in Europe and, you know, everything like that. And you you want to question a few things and it's a good podcast to do that. So well, I'm trying to push him for a return, but he, uh, at the moment, I, I don't get anything back. <laughs> and and uh, then let's, the future for you, next three to five years, like what, what are you hoping to be, what are you hoping to see yourself? I really want to uh, f- finish the project here that we started, uh, bring a DBL team into here. Um, I would love... I would love to go back to England at any time. Um, I try to convince sometimes Matt Newby to take me on and stuff like that, but he, he's not buying into it all the time. But and I and also I love to do a little bit more, maybe with uh, the coaches' association over there. I mean, I know they do a good job, but you know, with this with this Twitter cult nation thing. That, that keeps happening. They, anybody can put anything on there. And now you're getting coaches that aren't coaching that are telling people how to coach as well as, you know, you, you, it makes me laugh because you scroll through Twitter and at one minute you're laughing at a sheep on a trampoline and then the next thing is the best best basketball development program ever. Then you scroll down again today like you see and you see a highlight tape for referees and you're thinking, you know, is there actually a structure into the profession? You know, I mean, I like what they do, like in the coaching association and stuff like that, by providing information and stuff like that. But with the internet now and everything like that, I think it's more about making sure that our profession becomes professional. You know, making sure the sport starts to become professional by hiring professional people. And I think there has to be a commitment through a coaching association or something which guarantee, you know, that brings people together that really want to be professional. That so the so basketball England doesn't actually always have to say, you know, who goes on FECC, you know, 
who there has to be a there has to be another marker where you can actually the coaches association can work with the governing body and actually build the program instead of I think what well, Brian's been there 18 years now or 20 years and doing the same job and guess what nothing changed so you know no no disrespect to that to him at all because he you know what he takes a job but it's you know we got we got a situation now where coaches are getting hired by GB you know it's not again not rankings fault at all but if you know that he can't be there for qualifiers then why hire the guy you know you've got to forward thinking there has to be something it just throws our profession into a bit of you know disrespect i think so i don't like that about it and i think there's something more that we can do instead of just being an association that puts out information because everybody does that with whatever happens on twitter these days you know from people that aren't coaching and really like my background story is i've you know like mark dunning would say you've got to pay your dues and i think i've done that in a lot of different ways and i've been able to provide a lot of experience for myself and something that i think that yeah let's make this job a profession to be able to build that top-down approach because these are the little things that are missing that's a perfect place to leave it uh chris thank you so much for taking the time um obviously good luck with the with the rest of the season thank you uh, very much hope covid uh, doesn't cause well continues to be an opportunity actually in, in your case um, really for me right now so it's yeah. quite yeah but yeah. i hope you're safe and family safe and stuff like that and Maybe maybe catch you in the summer at some point. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Out anytime, you know. <laughs> I hope so. All the yeah. best. Thanks, man. Psst. Hey, podcast listener. Bet you weren't expecting to hear from me again. Now that you've listened to the show, please take two seconds to take your podcast player out of your pocket and give us a rating and review on iTunes. It would be massively appreciated and goes a long way in helping us spread this content far and wide. Literally take your phone out of your pocket right now. Uh, open up your podcast player. Go to the Hoops Fix podcast. You'll see the option to leave a rating and review. Drop us a five star if you love it. And uh, if you could take two seconds just to write a review as well, it would be massively, massively appreciated. Thank you and speak to you next week. You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.